0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get right to it because we got a lot of eco talk here. Seth Carpenter, chief economist for Morgan Stanley, joins us. He's got his PhD from Princeton, so he is familiar with Hoagie Haven, which the best cheesesteak hoagie on the planet. And he's got his undergraduate from William & Mary, which is a you know, good – you know, a nice foe to my University of Richmond Spiders. So I'm very familiar with William Mary. Hey, Seth, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start with the Fed yesterday. What's your takeaway?
2: Uh, yeah, quite a quite a meeting, long conference. Uh, inflation, inflation, inflation. came Inflation came up so many times. Powell's clearly uh, concerned about it, if anything, incrementally more so than uh, in December. He said if he had the chance to revise his forecast for inflation this year, he would revise it up. So I think that's important. So it was incrementally, I would say, more hawkish than December. Uh, I think the initial reaction in markets was that it was a ton more hawkish than before. And, and I guess I'll take a little bit of the under there. But Clearly, he's focused on inflation. Clearly, they're ready to go. Uh, Clearly, they have a lot of strategizing to do. Uh, So, March rate hike looks really solid. I think there's an open question still about the timing of when they run off the balance sheet.
3: Seth, going into the meeting, the market, I think, was extremely hawkish we were talking about four rate hikes priced into the market at the time uh, all chairman powell had to do was come off just relatively dovish compared to what the market was expecting and you would have seen uh, the, a risk rally essentially a relief rally we saw the exact opposite now you have uh, bond markets pricing in five full rate hikes in 2022. is the market right when it comes to the fed
2: Uh, I'm not quite sure that the the straight read yesterday was the right one. I think there was a lot of uh, confirmation bias going on. You're right, the market came in feeling kind of hawkish. And then when questions came up about, you know, are are they going to hike at every meeting? Are they going to do 50 basis point hike in March? Uh, I think the market took Powell's answer, which I think he meant to be... To not give a a steer, not give any direction. I think markets took that as well. He didn't push back, so it must be you know more likely than it was before. Um, You know, remains to be seen a little bit. (laughs) Exactly, exactly.
1: Seth, we had just a whole slew of uh, eco data, and I'm looking at my ECO GO uh, screen here on the Bloomberg terminal. Gives you all the the eco data here. What's the big one for you? Was it the uh, GDP, the 6.9 percent print that got your attention, or what are you really focusing on from this morning's data? Uh, a little bit less
2: so the GDP print itself. I mean, it was an upside surprise. We knew the data. We knew that it was going to be strong uh, at some point. It's a little hard to say this with a straight face, but the difference between you know six or something percent versus six point nine percent isn't isn't first order huge. There was a upward surprise in inventories, for example. I think the the, the components of GDP are more important than the individual uh, uh, you know the headline number for GDP. I think that inventories number is pretty pretty interesting. It might give you a little bit of relief that some of the backlogs and supply chain disruptions and that sort of thing are past the peak and starting to ease. Uh, and so for me, it, it really is the components. Uh, the rest of it, the durable goods orders going down, I think was big. It, a lot of that was in transportation. So, uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, the the momentum in the first quarter uh, is, is interesting for me. But the first quarter it looks like we're going to have a bit of a soft patch.
3: Talk to us a little bit about the inflation picture here, because, yes, we're seeing perhaps some signs of those supply chain pressures easing a little bit. But Chairman Powell was quite clear that's going to stick around. Those issues are going to stick around, at least for the remainder of this year. And I'm also looking at oil prices here. We're, we're looking at just shy of, well, we were before this recent dip here, Brent now at about $89 a barrel. But we were nearing 91 a barrel. Goldman, for example, upgrading their forecast to 100 by year end. How much of the oil picture should we be focusing on in terms of driving the direction of the economy?
2: So I don't think the oil picture is going to be driving the direction of the economy, but there's clearly, you know, strong demand in the U.S., strong global demand. And and we really have a lot of questions about supply. There's a reluctance to do much in the way of investment in oil, uh, given the, you know, Picture down the road of, of the push towards greening of, of, of the economy, and so you know we are uh, uh, facing really high oil prices. I think I think that matters for the U.S., but I don't think it's the first order driver that's going to be going on uh, for the U.S. in terms of you know real outcomes. I'm I'm more interested in how is the consumer doing? Are we going to see that shift in consumer spending from goods towards services that? we and i think a lot of others have been expecting i'm not sure oil is going to be driving that shift i think it's going to be once people have overconsumed uh, in terms of goods uh, that that shift will be inevitable
3: well, you read my mind when it comes to the consumer, because I was thinking gas prices as well. Uh, when we're talking about the consumer, though, we know that fiscal impact is going to be fading. We know savings are being depleted here. Do you continue to see that really strong consumer um, for maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but continuing and say let's the next five years uh, as that being a driver of the economy?
2: I do. I do. I think it's hard to imagine a U.S. economy where the consumer is not the driver. The the U.S. economy is, I think, for the foreseeable future, going to be a reflection of the U.S. consumer. I think the fiscal uh, fading this year is, is an interesting point. We know that the child tax credit, for example, ended and it didn't get extended because Build Back Better didn't get passed. I think therein lies one serious short-term headwind uh, for the consumer. But if over the horizons that you're talking about a couple of years... I think it really is going to come down to what's going on with job creation, what's going on with with wages, because that's going to be the core of what's driving consumer spending. And, and yeah, I think think the consumer is going to be king of the U.S. economy for the foreseeable future.
1: All right, Seth, thanks uh, so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting some of your time here to talk through, again, what we heard from the Fed yesterday and then uh, obviously the eco data that was reported this morning by the U.S. government. Seth Carpenter, chief economist for Morgan Stanley.
0: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: The message is clear. Interest rates are going up. That means the discount rate you use in your discounted cash flow uh, goes higher. So for some of those tech companies where they get a lot of value with their terminal value, that's a thing. Let's bring in somebody who thinks about tech investing and find out how much of a thing that is. Lisa Chai, partner at Robo Global. Lisa, how are you guys thinking about tech investing here in 2022 as, as we go into a uh, what is clearly a rising interest rate environment? How do you guys think about that?
4: I think that this, um, in the last several months, there's obviously a lot of focus around some of the high growth companies and and the impact. We tend to really look at these companies in a very longer term in terms of their transformative powers. And uh, the companies that we're talking to are really not really that focused and focusing and managing their business around interest rate. I think that is definitely something that we investors look at. Longer term, we do believe that there is a lot of transformative impact happening with technologies in, like artificial intelligence and metaverse, um, that's really driving kind of the future of digital experience and digital technology. So we tend to kind of look at companies in a longer term and very thematic way. So we're finding that our investors understand. Uh, some of the technologies and the longer term secular trends are really driving the growth here. So if you do look at it that way, I think the, the current um, dynamics of all the, the, the focus and the panic around interest rates seems very short term.
3: It kind of sounds like you're saying that perhaps you could see continued growth in some of these big tech names that we've seen uh, in the last say decade. What's your thought on that? is that are we are we done with that kind of big boom in those big tech companies or is there still more to come? I think there's a lot more to come. I think
4: we're really seeing this next generation of internet technology that's really developing you're seeing the ecosystem of companies that's been driven by the tech giants and you saw that. Uh, A few nights ago, when Microsoft CEO uh, made a lot of comments about increasing their R&D investments around metaverse technologies and and the gaming and also their enterprise technology. So that tells you, if you look at uh, these companies in the past, when they were worried about the economy and interest rates, they did pull back on their spending. What's different here seems to me that uh, many of these companies really feel great about the next generation of technology being developed you know, fueled by the cloud deployment and also probably accelerated by the pandemic with all of the staying at home and working from home. So much of our experience, that digital experience, has really pushed some of the Internet technology to sort of the next generation. And that's why I think these companies and the CEOs feel really comfortable about the visibility over the next several years and they're investing and they're moving forward. And that that gives you some comfort as to the technology investing and the growth rate. I don't really think it's going to slow down anytime soon. I think right now you are seeing lots of emotional trading and impact that's happening right now. But longer term, I don't think artificial intelligence is going away. I don't think digital digital experience is going to go away. And it, I think it's probably just going to advance over time.
1: Right. Lisa, you know, one of the, the big M&A trades that got my attention over the last couple of weeks was Microsoft's nearly $69 billion acquisition of Activision, the gaming company. What did you guys think about that deal?
4: Yeah. Well, it was strategically it makes sense uh, we were surprised um, like many other investors that they had this they made this acquisition because it is microsoft's largest acquisition to date and it is a company that has uh, very strong assets but also give you some glimpse as to what they're thinking about while they commented that healthcare was an area they were really interested in you could see that healthcare getting penetrating into that sector is going to be it's going to be difficult and it's going to take a longer time the gaming industry is booming been accelerated by the pandemic and all of us uh, with our smartphones are going to be using more of the mobile game and that's where the, the money is at this point so you could see that microsoft strategy whether it's it's a metaverse strategy or the gaming strategy they really want to own the consumer not just in the enterprise level but also at home so they really want to build out their subscription revenue So that's really about their mobile side of the business and and obviously their uh, power for that multiplayer experience for the metaverse strategy. But you're starting to see a lot of tech giants like Microsoft really trying to build their subscription revenue. So over time, these are the big implications is that our lives is going to be really all of our lives going to be generated based on our subscription revenues. Right. At home and also at work. And that's going to blur.
1: All right. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts here on the tech space. Lisa Chai, she's a partner at Robo Global. All right. We've spent a lot of time here talking about some really big picture economic issues. Supply chain woes. We heard that from 1 800 Flowers today. That impacted them. Um, rising interest rates. That was certainly the topic du jour yesterday afternoon with the Federal Reserve. Uh, but let's drill down a little bit and look at the small business owner and how is a small business owner dealing with uh, the economic disruption we've seen from this pandemic and the resulting uh, headwinds. Derek Ellington is the perfect person to chat with about that. Derek Ellington is the head of small business for Wells Fargo. Derek, I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of what are the top, you know, one, two, three challenges for small businesses in America today.
5: Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show with you today. And again, a great question around the outlook for small businesses and some of the challenges that still persist. I'd say starting with supply chain issues, uh, they continue to persist. Materials and uh, other costs uh, continue to rise. Hiring also remains a challenge. But I'll say this one common theme we've continued to see throughout this entire pandemic is how resilient small businesses are. Uh, If you look at the past 12 months in particular, we've seen our small businesses continue to pivot and adjust their business models to better accommodate the needs of their clients, leverage technology and other resources to adapt to the changing environment. And we've also seen a record number of new business starts particularly many folks during this great resignation, making the decision to start their own businesses. So when we think about the outlook for small businesses in 2022, it's bright and it's building off of that strong fourth quarter GDP growth we all saw fueled by accelerated consumer consumption.
3: Talk to us a little bit about how perhaps government aid or lack thereof, uh, is, is impacting small businesses. My dad, for example, he's a small business owner. And, and in the depths of the pandemic, the, the small business loans was a big part of what kept him afloat. Talk to us a little bit about how uh, small businesses are navigating this environment when perhaps some of that government help is receding.
5: That's a great question, Pretty, And uh, I'd say that the, the government funding was critical in supporting our small businesses. Uh, that was one thing that uh, as a country we saw one thinking about that when you look at the whole US economy, uh, 99% of all businesses are small businesses in America. So that stimulus funding being targeted on uh, helping small businesses was critical. Uh, we saw uh, businesses take that support Capitalize their businesses while they were closed, to also invest in their businesses and keep employees on staff while um, things got back to uh, better footing in the economy. And as a result of that, we saved a tremendous amount of jobs in our economy uh, by making those decisions to provide that support. And it also limited the amount of uh, additional borrowing that many small businesses had to take on uh, during the pandemic in order to, to 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 survive and get to the other side of the challenges. So uh, we've seen that funding be a critical element of, of survival and support during these challenges.
1: Derek, what are you hearing from your small business customers about the labor market challenges? It just seems like every small business has a help wanted sign out and it's not even small businesses i was down in durham north carolina over the weekend going to a cracker barrel and i walk in to the cracker barrel on sunday morning prime time and they said it's gonna be an hour wait and i look around there's like half the table's full and it's because they only had three servers and they usually have 20 yes there was an inch of snow like two days before which shut down the entire city but talk to us about the labor market and and how small businesses are dealing with it
5: Great question again, Paul, and there, there are a couple of barbells around uh, the challenges small businesses are facing around labor. One is the cost of Uh, just wages in general have gone up significantly in the current uh, labor environment. We've seen a lot of individuals uh, who are retirement eligible make a decision to retire. We've seen other folks uh, make decisions that they want to go in a different line of work, and that's put a lot of pressure on uh, labor capacity and availability. Uh, But for the top workers, along every aspect of the spectrum, particularly those skilled laborers, the cost of employing those individuals uh, and the competition for that talent has gone way up. And also, again, the other barbell, again, is that there are fewer workers available in general because of the wave of retirements, as well as those that, that, again, have pivoted to other industries as, uh, as they've had time to reflect on their long-term uh, career aspirations. And again, that's made it very tough for our small businesses to compete for that talent, particularly at the lower end of the wage spectrum.
1: Yeah, very interesting dynamic. Uh, it's interesting to see how, again, a lot of these businesses react. Derek Ellington, thanks so much for joining us. Derek Ellington is the head of small business for uh, Wells Fargo.
0: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com/techsf.
1: Well, I tell you one thing that a good global pandemic will do will get you to focus even more on healthcare, healthcare trends, healthcare costs. Um, I think we've all kind of gotten, a, become a little bit of an expert on those types of things. And let's get some color. Let's get a 30,000 foot view on all things healthcare with Ash Shahata, partner, advisory industry leader, health plans at KPMG. Ash, thanks so much for joining us. I know you guys do a lot of survey work, thinking about kind of what are the trends in healthcare here. As, as we maybe back away a little bit from COVID, what are some of the bigger trends that you guys are looking out for?
6: Well, thanks, Paul. You know, Trends are pretty amazing going into the year, and there's just so much excitement and energy, as you know, in the
1: healthcare and life
6: sciences sector. One of the big 30, 70% of healthcare and life sciences surveys uh, basically said about half of the healthcare and life sciences investors are saying they want to do more deals than last year, and last year was already a kind of a landmark year. And we're expecting, uh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% more deals. Uh, the other, I think, key data point is four in 10 life sciences investors. And 30% of healthcare investors say that they actually, you know, are are really, really kind of focusing on that 10% growth number. So it, it seems to be that uh, you know they're ready to go, and and I we know we have some headwinds, but there's a lot of enthusiasm in the market right now.
3: How much of that enthusiasm is coming uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic as opposed to just kind of the momentum in the biotech space pre-pandemic?
6: Yeah, uh, great, great question, Craig. I mean, I think the you know, obviously the pandemic uh, put, put some accelerators on, on some things and also put some pauses a little bit on, on the healthcare side. But I think most of this has really been kind of the sustainability of the industry. We are seeing kind of very strong demographic growth. We're seeing, you know, investments in technology across the board, post acute care, uh, biotech. Uh, so I think it really is about looking for those good uh, valuations, looking at those good opportunities. I mean, just the point on valuation growth. Uh, biopharma is expecting 65% valuation growth, med device 75%, pharma services 75%, and even healthcare IT, another 70%. So it is very, very positive. And I think when you look at those growth numbers, you really are looking uh, beyond the pandemic.
1: All right. So Ash, give us your thoughts on inflation here. We're seeing inflation all throughout the U.S. economy and we've certainly seen it in drug prices, you know, since, oh, I don't know, the beginning of time. Um, how are your clients in the healthcare space thinking about inflation and the impacts on their business?
6: You know, obviously, the inflationary trends are, are top of mind. Uh, clearly, it will, uh, you know, potentially be a headwind. But I think we have options. You know, the nice thing about this sector, uh, it usually is a very strong, safe haven, uh, inflationary times. Uh, once we get past the kind of pandemic uh, uh, concerns. Uh, the expectation is that more more uh, uh, opportunities will flow into this sector. Uh, but I do think optionality is really important. You know, if inflation does start to move up the needle a little bit on the affordability, uh, there will be options to sell uh, potential investments to sponsors and strategics. So I think we're going to see that across med device and, and even health systems and distributors. I think the other one I would just say is that uh, it might also uh, uh, accelerate deal activity in the first half of the year. Uh, so that actually might be something we want to look at. But in normal circumstances, uh, this is a sector that can handle inflation. And I think when we started to see the data, uh, you know, people were actually factoring that into their growth strategies, even ahead of this, uh, you know, recent uh, announcement we're seeing from the
2: Fed. Let's
3: just talk about uh, the kind of scrutiny or perhaps the medical regulations that you're going to see around the world now that you have seen, say, the FDA, the CDC uh, kind of diverge from some of the other medical authorities uh, around the world, how much of that is a risk to the sector broadly?
6: You know, I think you kind of look at both sides of this. Uh, You know, obviously, the risks are are clearly there. And I think understanding this industry is one that many investors and and also uh, corporates have, have done well. But I also look at it as an opportunity. I think the fact that uh, we have seen so much collaboration, public-private partnerships, uh, the one thing that this pandemic has taught us is that the partnerships between government and private industry can be tremendous. And not only that, but they can be life-saving. So I think there is a kind of an upside uh, sentiment here uh, that, you know, in a regulatory environment where healthcare and life sciences is so strategic to our growth and and our survivability uh, as as a nation, I think we're going to see that across the globe. So I think you're going to see positives out of this, uh, you know, even more so than than negative downsides.
1: Ash, it seems like for a while there, we had an every time every Monday morning we came into the office, we had a, a big M&A trade in the healthcare space. How what's your survey data showing you about kind of the outlook over the next year or two as it relates to M&A?
6: Yeah, I think the M&A side of it is is still going to be pretty healthy. Um, so just to give you kind of that, you know, we do kind of expect, uh, you know, I, in that 10% growth number I talked about, a lot of that will be kind of, uh, you know, factored in around the growth uh, segment. But I do think you're going to see more and more of it as we start to see, uh, at least on the healthcare side, a little bit of the resumption of the inpatient cases. I think we're looking for a little bit of that uncertainty to ease. Uh, and I think as we start to get, you know, past the next uh, several months and, and this next wave of, of uh, you know, the pandemic, uh, you're going to see M&A kind of resume. I think the other issue I think we're going to start to see for M&A, there are going to be opportunities to do strategic M&A, uh, not only for growth, but also to look at areas around leveraging resources, staff, IT, and technology. So I think those areas are still ahead of us, and we're expecting that to drive further growth for
1: 22. All right, Ash. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate it. As always, Ash Shahada, partner, advisory industry leader.